the Bible, a word or phrase keeps repeating itself. And you wonder whether or not there's some significance in it. Every teacher knows that the best way to get their students to learn is by repetition. And of course, the greatest teacher of all is the Lord Jesus Christ, who repeated his stories and himself several times in the Gospels. And you remember, he it was that says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, here is another often repeated phrase which might be familiar to you. And it's been a great challenge to me, and it will come as a great challenge to us, I think. The phrase I want us to think about, or at least a couple of words that I want us to think about this morning, appear frequently in the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments. And they perhaps cause us to focus a little bit on who we are, what we are, and where we're going. And it's that little phrase, one thing, one thing. And I want to look at five examples, in fact, about where it appears, what it is said, or when it is said, to what person or circumstance it's said, and to what it says to us. For example, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus said to a rich young man, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. In Luke chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus has been welcomed, you remember, into the house of Mary and Martha. And as the events unfold, he says to Martha, one thing, Martha, is needful. In Philippians 3, 3 to 14 that we read, the apostle writes these words, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. In John 9, verse 25, a blind man who receives his sight back from Jesus says, One thing I know, I was blind, now I see. And Psalm 27, verse 4, I couldn't possibly have known that you were going to read that this morning, but greatly heartened that you had. One thing I ask, O Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. I think they're the only five occasions where those phrase, one thing appears in the whole Bible. But those of you who've got a concordance, do Christians even use a concordance now? You do. You can check it out or Google it. So I want to look at these in turn, very briefly, not in great detail, just to challenge us and encourage us a little bit this morning to find what they meant to them, what they mean to us, and in no particular order, as they always say on these reality programs, in no particular order, number one. First of all, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And if you've got the verses in front of you, you can follow it a little bit. I won't turn to those verses, those chapters, that most of these will be familiar to you. But in Mark 21, you remember a rich man, a rich young man, we're told, someone who really had everything going for him, money, riches, status, prestige, possessions, comes to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's interesting on itself, isn't it? His money, his riches, his status, his prestige, his possessions had given him something perhaps some instant, even material benefit, but they were not enough. They didn't bring him the satisfaction, the peace, 
the purpose in life that his heart craved and longed for, and he wanted and was looking for something more, or else why would a man like him be coming to visit Jesus there? And the clue, of course, is in the question. All that had, all that had been given him and been given brought him some instant or material benefit, but his heart, like yours and mine, craves an eternal peace, doesn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember it was Augustine who said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. We're all looking for something to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to give us significance, to give us peace in this life. And we will find it nowhere ultimately except in Jesus. Well, a short conversation follows where Jesus challenges the man to think seriously about the journey he's been on in life until now, which had been a very religious and a very devout one, where he'd come from and what he was all about. And on one level, he could say to Jesus, he was doing okay. But then Jesus says to him these words, One thing you lack, sell everything and, I, and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. Now, of course, it wasn't simply that Jesus was asking him to give up his money or his riches. The riches weren't really the point. Many people in the Bible had wealth. Many people had wealth in the Bible, used it wisely for themselves and for others, for God, for the furtherance of the gospel. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with money or possessions. It's the love of money which is the root of all evil, not money. But sometimes having it, money, possessions and all of those things, you can fool yourself into thinking that having those things give you meaning, give you purpose, give you significance and value in life. And if we come to God with all of that baggage, he will make us aware of that. He will not have us think on that level. Having money... Having possessions and wealth is, ironically, a very shaky foundation on which to build your life. We all know, of course, that in the end it counts for nothing. We came into the world with nothing and we will leave this world with nothing. How much do they leave? People often ask when somebody dies and the answer is always the same. Everything. As far as our eternal destiny is concerned, money counts for nothing. So when Jesus said to him, go sell everything you have... He wasn't just asking the man to give away his riches, but really this, to think about what it was in his life that he was really attached to more than anything else. Something that he loved more than God. Something that had perhaps become his idol. Because anything that stops us from following Jesus, that's what Jesus wanted, remember, sell everything and follow me. Anything which is stopping you from following Jesus is your idol. And Jesus was asking him to examine his heart. Anything that was stopping him from following Jesus with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all his strength. And that challenge hit the man hard because you know what it says? We read that he went away sad. How sad is that? How sad is that? A lot of people, there are very, very few occasions when we read in the Bible 
that somebody having had an encounter with Jesus went away sad. Most people went away rejoicing, leaping for joy. Some went away angry, of course. He went away sad because there was something more important in his life than God, than Jesus, and following him. It was his money, which was his idol, and he went away sad. What is your idol? What is your idol? What is stopping you? What is stopping me from giving my full commitment to Jesus and following him? It may not be money. Maybe something else. But if you're serious about your eternal destiny this morning, then we're going to have to answer this question. It's something for us to think about. Jesus said to this man, one thing you lack. What is it that's preventing you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? It may not be money with you. It might be a habit. It might be an addiction. It might be an obsession. It might be a routine. It might be a relationship or a lifestyle that you've gotten used to. Something that's holding you back from following the Savior. One thing you lack, Jesus says. The psalmist says elsewhere, doesn't he? Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So our first one thing is this. One thing I lack. What is the idol? Secondly, the verses that we read together in Philippians 3 and verse 14, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, as strange what is ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ. Now, unlike the other fellow, Paul was a Christian. Of course, some people might say he was the greatest Christian who has ever lived. He was an apostle. He was called, expressly called, to make the gospel known to the Gentiles especially. He was responsible for writing two-thirds of the New Testament. He was a remarkable man. And then in Philippians 3, he's writing to the Philippian Christians to tell them about what really matters in their Christian life. Because he knew that we all have a tendency to boast and to put our confidence in the wrong things. Don't we? For some of them, it was their religious upbringing, being devout about religious ceremonies and customs and rituals, for example, being circumcised. Paul had to remind them that they shouldn't put their confidence in such things, not the flesh, what has been done to you, not what you were by birth, a Jew, or not even what, you, what the upbringing that you'd had, what your religious, religious practices and habits had become. Paul, who could have boasted in all of these things to the nth degree, says in the end, he says that in terms of his close relationship with God, all of those things in the end count for nothing. Nothing. In fact, he goes further than that. He says, whatever I thought was profit, I count loss. And in the original, it's very strong. He says, I counted dung. It's a load of He says, are you getting some false hope or confidence in something like that? By the virtue of the fact that perhaps you were born into a Christian home? Is that where you're putting your confidence this morning? That you were christened? That you've been coming to Sunday school all your life and church after that all of your life? And as good as some of these things are in and of themselves, in the end, in terms of your 
intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, on their own, they count for nothing. They don't gain us access to God, and they don't draw us any closer to him, in and of themselves. What really mattered, more than anything else, Paul tells us in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And to that end, Paul reminds them, nothing else mattered. Now, Paul had made some progress in his Christian life, but it wasn't even enough for him in his eyes. He says in verse 12 that his great desire was to press on. I want to press on, he says, to everything that Christ has got in store for me, he says in verse 12. That was his goal and that was his boast from, from now on, which is why he says in verse 13, he says, but one thing I do do, forgetting all of that, circumcision, that heritage. You can read all about it there in the early part of Philippians. Forgetting all of that, I want to strain to what is ahead, towards the goal to win the prize for which God had called me heavenward in Christ. It was like Paul was saying that he'd forgot about everything else, his religious heritage, past blessings and achievements and all of that. He just wanted to concentrate on the one thing, and that was really knowing Jesus. Or to quote the modern hymn that we sometimes sing, I'm sure you sing it here, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. That's what Paul was all about. So we put no confidence in the flesh or any of that, but we are to strive with every nerve and sinew, not into those things, but to know more about Jesus, more about Christ, and to be in a relationship with him. In fact, Paul tells us earlier than that, he's already told them in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, for me to live is Christ. Because anyone looking objectively at Paul's life, anyone who'd heard his every conversation was in absolutely no doubt whatsoever about what his life was about. It was about Christ. Christ was his goal, his aim, his priority, his vision, his purpose for living. Christ is who he wanted to know. Christ is who he wanted to serve. Christ is whom he wanted to proclaim and talk about. For Paul, it's all to do with Christ. It's the one thing that he refused to be sidetracked about, knocked off course about, or to compromise about. What about you? What are people concluding when they look at our lives, when they hear our conversations, when they see what we do or don't do? For me to live is Christ. Thirdly, in John chapter 9, verse 25, we read this. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Here is a man who had been born blind, and events and circumstances conspired so that he met Jesus, and following a discussion with Jesus, Jesus healed him of his blindness, restoring him to 20-20 vision. Much to his own joy, the delight of his appearance and the astonishment of his friends, but not everyone was happy. There were critics and there were skeptics. Now this man barely knew Jesus. He'd had actually very little contact with him. But he'd seen enough, heard enough and experienced enough. He'd been saved, enough to be cured, enough to set his life on a new road and on a new path. And he was, I suppose, the equivalent of what we might call today a new believer, really, wasn't he? Someone who'd just got started 
in his, new, in his relationship with Jesus. He was a new convert, if you like. He'd just been saved. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't even know all the questions. But when he was asked by the skeptics who said to him, what happened? Who did this to you? He said this. Well, basically he said, one thing I know. I was blind. And now I see. All he did was state the obvious. People could see that he could see. They could see that he was a changed man and they wanted to know the reason for it and he simply told them it was because of him. Now, there's a spiritual application here, isn't it? It's very obvious, very simple, it's very powerful. If we've had contact with Jesus, if he's changed our lives, people will see it. They'll notice it. They'll see it clearly and if it's of any significance in your life, there will come a point when they'll want to ask you, why? What's the reason for the change? They will notice that we're on a new path. We see things clearly and differently, that we've got fresh eyes, we have new goals, we're on a new journey. And they will ask why. Well, we won't have all the answers, not if we're a new convert. And we won't have all the answers if we've been a Christian life for about 50 years, will we, Richard? We can't know everything, and maybe not very much in the early days, but we can say this much, can't we? I don't know much. I don't know about the hypostatic union or the trinity or the predestination or any. I don't know anything about that. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead in my transgressions and sins, and now I'm alive. That's all I know. My sins are forgiven. We can say that, can't we? We can say that much. Even if all you can do is to quote them him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If that is all you said, it's the one thing that needs saying. Isn't it? Fourthly, in Luke chapter 10, verse 32, we find Jesus at home with two sisters, Mary and Martha. They'd, been invite, they'd invited Jesus into their home. And Jesus came. Have you invited him to your home? Into your heart? Because if you have, he'll come. He accepts invitations like that. And all the time Jesus was there, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, adoring him, waiting on his every word. She didn't want to let this opportunity pass simply to be with Jesus and to listen to him and to be in his company. Meanwhile, her sister Martha, who was equally joyous to have Jesus in her home, was busy doing other things. She was getting distracted in the kitchen. She was making preparations for the meal. She was putting the kettle on. She was getting the biscuits out. She was cutting the cake. She was finding the plates, laying the table, finding the drinks. And all the time, we, we get the impression that we're not told. We just get the impression, as she's doing all of that, she's just sort of looking over her shoulder. And Mary, and she's thinking to herself, what's she doing sitting there when I'm doing all of this? That's what's going through her head. We've all done it. That's what she's thinking. What's she doing? Why isn't she helping me? And in the end, it got to her. She's feeding her and her mind was. It's going through her mind. And in the end, it got to her. And she gets so frustrated. I think this is hilarious. 
because we read, she went in to where they were and she spoke to, now you'd expect her to speak to Mary. Why don't you give me a hand, love? But she speaks to Jesus and she says, Lord, don't you care? The cheek of it. Don't you care? My sister's left me to do this work all by, tell her. And Jesus' reply is surprising, isn't it? In verse 41, we read, you think Jesus might side with somebody. He's too clever for that. <laughs> Never get involved in a dispute with two sisters. <laughs> Martha, Martha, he says, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And it won't be taken from her. Because there's nothing better, dear friends, than spending time at the feet of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing better than that. There's nothing better than being in his company, hearing his voice, listening to his There's too much conversation today. And we've even got programs called Talk Radio, Talk TV. There's too much talk. Everybody's got an opinion about everything. What about listening to Jesus and his talk? There are times when we know he's present and when he's near. And we don't want to blow it. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it by being distracted or busy with all of the wrong things, as perfectly legitimate as some of those things are. I guess devotion trumps everything, doesn't it, to Jesus. Now, we can't do it with Jesus physically. He's no longer here. He's in glory. But he's here by his spirit. He's here, isn't he, by his spirit He dwells in our hearts by faith. He's here by his spirit. He is certainly here every time we spend time with him, every time we open the Bible, and every time we read about him and we pray and come to him in prayer. He's there then. We're near then. He's here now. Because the Bible says that every time we come together in this way, even when two or three gather in his name, he's there, especially so. So never miss coming to church. Never, never, never miss if you can. And especially around the Lord's table. How precious is that time to draw close to Jesus? And that's where Mary chose to be, right there at the feet of Jesus. Above everything else, she wanted to be where Jesus was. So do I. She wanted to be there. What is distracting you, friends? What are you worried about? What are you, dist- what are you anxious about? What is imploding your mind with thought maybe all sorts of legitimate things out there important as they are but one thing is needful at the end of the day and Mary was blessed greatly and enormously by spending time in the presence of Jesus talking with him in prayer time spent with his word time spent with his people there's nothing better that you will do in your life than spending time with him which brings us to our last consideration Psalm 27 verse 4 I didn't know that you were going to read that this morning This is from the Old Testament, a psalm of David. He's already spoken in that psalm. Mason read it for us. Was it Mason or... Was it Mason read it for us? Or was it uh, Tristan read it for us? Yeah, we, we heard him say, he's spoken about how the Lord is his light and the Lord is his salvation. He spoke about how God is the stronghold of his life, his protector against all his enemies. And as he reflects upon all of those things, he speaks about what it is that he wants to be the main priority of the remaining days he has. One thing I ask of thee, O Lord, he says, one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see, David knew what Mary knew. 
David knew what Mary knew, what Paul knew, what the man restored with sight knew, that to be in God's presence, to be in the presence of Jesus, to be with the Lord's people, to be where he's especially present is the greatest joy and blessing to us of all. And David made it his goal. He made it his life's ambition to spend all of his life or as much of it as he could in God's presence, serving in God's house, gazing upon his beauty in praise and worship. Is this your goal? And is it mine? Will you resolve like David that no matter what is going on in your life, no no matter what are all the other priorities, that you will say, I'm going to seek him. I'm going to serve him and his people. I'm going to do everything I can to be part of what God is doing in his house, amongst his people, and to make him known. Do you remember the words of that old hymn? My talents, gifts, and gracious Lord, into thy blessed hands receive. And let me live to preach thy word, and let me to your glory live. My every sacred moment spend in publishing the sinner's friend, and worshipping him, and making him known. So what is the one thing, after all we've looked at this morning as we draw things to a close, what is the the one thing that you've got to get right in your life this morning? Do you need to get right with God? Is that where you are this morning? Do you need to get right with him? Are you looking for other things to give you fulfillment and significance and purpose when really you know that the one thing that you need is to come to Jesus, cast everything else aside and come to him, give up everything for him? Are you a new Christian this morning? Relatively new in your Christian life. You don't have all the answers. Don't have many answers at all at the present time. It doesn't matter. You can at least say this, can't you? One thing I do now, I was blind, but now I see. I was lost. And now I'm found. Tell your friends that on the schoolyard tomorrow. Do you need to reassess? You've been a Christian for a long, long, long time. Do you need to reassess what your priorities are in the Christian life and what it is you're putting your true confidence and faith in? Not your church attendance, not your Bible reading, not your prayers, not the fact that you belong to a Christian family, you were baptized 20 years or whatever it is, but you're pressing forward to knowing more of Christ. Can you say of you now, for me to live is Christ? Do people know that when they look at you and hear your conversation? Do you need to go deeper in your Christian life and like Mary just simply sit at the feet of Jesus in his word, with his people, at communion, whatever place and find more to be intimate time to be intimate with Jesus? And will you make serving God and his people your priority in life? Like David, will you say, one thing I will ask of you, O Lord, this only will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Amen. Oh, we're going to sing again. Uh, it's the hymn, Above the Voice.